0: During one week in April 1970, 17,000 mothers and their newborns were asked to take part in a survey to find out more about the first week of life. This became known as the 1970 British Cohort Study, BCS70, and this year the study turns 50. So welcome to the podcast that celebrates the 50th birthday of a special study that has transformed our understanding of British society. I'm Lee Elliott-Major, Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter, and I'll be your host over the next six episodes as we trace the story of BCS-70 across five decades and consider the future of this amazing study. For episode one, we're going back in time to the very start, 1970. Labour's Harold Wilson was in his last days as Prime Minister, Michael Evis was soon to stage the first Glastonbury Festival and Bridge Over Troubled Water was number one, offering hope and comfort to the tired mothers and their fragile offspring. Little did our study participants know that many would be involved with another nine surveys of the study over the next five decades acting as our guides across the era, they would go on to show us what it was like to grow up, learn, work, love and age in modern Britain.
1: School milk, that's something I remember. Not something I remember very fondly. It was all a bit congealed and and not very nice.
0: (laughs) We used to play in the woods and in the fields. It was fantastic. There was no sense of danger back then. We could climb trees until dusk and come home wash your knees, go to bed, no problem.
1: I mostly remember the summer of 1976 being boiling hot. I remember the hosepipe ban. I remember the endless days of sunshine and that was a really happy time.
2: The Queen's Jubilee, where we had a street party and all the neighbours took part, from school getting Memorative mugs and coins which were really exciting
1: i can remember we used to have power cuts it was all to do with the winter of discontent and all the strikes and politically it all went over my head but i just remember the experience of being plunged into the dark
0: i remember there was a guy he had a rally chopper with carpet stuck all over the crossbars and some playing cards attached to the spokes of his wheels with clothes pegs so it sounded like a motorbike when he's riding along and i just thought that was the coolest thing i'd ever seen by telling its story we'll be celebrating the amazing contribution this study has made to british science and society we'll interview the researchers whose findings have influenced government policy as well as the policy makers and politicians who have eagerly digested their results And last but not least, we'll hear from the study participants themselves, without whom none of this would be possible. But first, what is a birth cohort study? Well, it's a study that follows people at key stages across their lives, providing unique evidence on how they develop from infancy into childhood and adult life. The findings show how early-life circumstances shape later-life outcomes, uncovering the roots of many sources of inequalities. In combination, the cohort studies have been used to chart and understand the big changes in society that have occurred across the generations. BCS 70 is one of four national birth cohort studies, and one of three based at the Centre for Longitudinal Studies at UCL's Institute of Education. Over the lives of participants, academics have collected information on their health, family, education and economic circumstances, helping to paint a picture of what life has been like for this generation, often called Generation X. In this first episode, I'll be chatting to Professor Leon Feinstein, whose research on the initial childhood surveys of BCS-70 had a profound impact on the new Labour government. We'll also be hearing from study participants who will recount their memories of taking part when they were children. But first, Professor Jean Golding. Professor Golding is an epidemiologist and was a key member of the team charged with data analysis of BCS-70 in the 1970s and 1980s. She had cut her cloth in an earlier cohort study from 1958 and so it was natural that she would become involved in the 1970 study. I began by asking her about her earliest memories.
1: It wasn't started as a cohort study, uh, nor was the 58th survey. They both started as a birth survey, as did the earlier one, which was 1946. So you had this series, which they repeated every 12 years. But did they learn from it? No. <laughs> They didn't say we're starting a cohort study. They said we're doing a birth survey, which in retrospect was probably a good idea. I don't think they planned it to be a good idea, but once you say we're doing a cohort study, people look at the amount that that's going to cost and back away. So 1970 uh, was a birth survey built on the 1958 plan, And that plan had been to look at what caused so many babies to die, both before they were born and after they were born. So the 1970 cohort was to look in particular at the quality of life of the babies being born. They knew that the death rate had gone down, but what they didn't know was how healthy the newborn babies were and what could be done to ameliorate any problems.
0: And, and to clarify, so the 1970 birth study originally was to explore some some further details about early development that we hadn't looked at in the 58 cohort.
1: Yes, it didn't get very far in that sort of sense. It got much more exciting when the children were five. And that's when Neville Butler decided to follow them up. But that was the first time that anybody had thought we should follow this cohort.
0: And you worked with Neville Butler, did you? Because that's quite a name now.
1: Yes, I did. It was quite a name then.
0: So he was the first really to think about following up people as they progress through life.
1: Well, he was involved in the 1958 cohort, but took part in planning the follow up of those children. So he was familiar with the concept And the 1970 cohort, yes, he had a free hand in designing how to follow up through the early childhood.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to work with Neville? Because he's such a big name in this area.
1: Um, Challenging, um, inspiring. He was a mercurial character who had masses of ideas which would just tumble out one after the other after the other. And every so often they were brilliant. So I looked at my task of sitting at his feet and trying to discern which are the really good ones and taking them and running with them.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, because people um, now... Uh, you know, just assume that these studies are here for us to look at, and they 're so important in looking back at history and how society has changed, but they often rely on individuals to make them happen that's that sometimes gets forgotten right
1: well, that's certainly the way it used to happen. It was always somebody's spearheading. It was a revelation to see the way in which Neville approached the follow up because he was a pediatrician very much involved in the development of children and very much aware of the way in which physical and mental health of children interacted and interacted with their parents. So he was pretty far reaching in his visions.
0: Some of my colleagues overseas are always envious of, of us, Britain, mm-hmm for the richness of data that we have do do we know how unusual it is to have had the 1970
1: cohort yes it's it's very unusual to have national cohorts and this is partly um involved with the people who take the lead and whether they are happy to spend their time forging forward and raising the money and having ideas rather than taking data off and analyzing them them and, you know, going on the talking circuit.
0: You worked on the 1970 cohort, right? It's very computerised now, isn't it? What was it like in those days?
1: I have a, a more vivid memory of the 1958 cohort. All the information of the birth surveys were on punch cards. The team involved would take 17,000 cards, to what's called a counter sorter at British Gas somewhere in London. I wasn't involved in this. I had two young children I had to look after, thank God. They would be sorting the data out, doing the sort of things that we would do in terms of creating tables and um, that sort of thing. It wasn't doing the computations. So it had developed a little bit by 1975, uh, when I got involved. But it was still sort of fairly simple computing. It was, nevertheless, computing using proper computers. But I have always felt that it was important to get to know the information in a lot of detail rather than just press a button and write down the answer.
0: I guess one of the beauties of the Coast is not only the longevity, but it's the multidisciplinarity of them as well.
1: Yes. That's really incredibly important. I mean, very obvious once you start thinking about it. But other cohort studies you see in different countries tend to be focused on on very specific things. So you get asthma cohorts or cohorts to look at what has happened that involves the development of autism, say. But they, A, they still cost a lot, but they can't do other things because that's the way they're designed. Whereas the multidisciplinary ones uh, are very important. And the COVID thing, where um, we've all uh, sent out questionnaires straight away, uh, I think is particularly important uh, as an illustration of how looking at all sorts of different things will fit into how you look at COVID.
0: I'm going to talk a little bit about ASPAC. You were really responsible for starting, which is amazing. How did your, you know, experiences with the 1970 cohort help you in establishing that new cohort study?
1: I think it was the most important influence on my way of thinking because uh, of the way in which it tried to marry the medical and the psychological and the social, all sorts of different aspects of the physical environment as well. So that was um, particularly sitting at the feet of Neville Butler, getting to know people who were involved in cohort studies and um, the way in which they were approaching different aspects of them.
0: Why is it important then that BCS-70 continues and indeed the cohort studies continue as a whole?
1: Well, one of the the most important questions is going to be what is it that influences the development of dementia in old age? And there's a lot of evidence that what happens early in life may well have an impact on that. So it's going to be a question of having longitudinal studies so that you can look over time, particularly having different cohorts. There are different environments that you're exposed to early in life in the different cohorts. So comparing one cohort with another to look at such outcomes is really important. And you're there ready to monitor anything that pops up as a new disease or a new craze or or whatever. The cohorts are well worth the money spent.
0: Already in the 1970s, BCS-70 was seen as highly significant and a worthwhile investment. But what of the study members? This is Generation X, people born between the late 1960s and the early 1980s. More and more mothers were working and the divorce rate was rising. This generation is also referred to as the latchkey generation, as they had much more unsupervised time. Throughout this series, we'll be hearing from the study participants our own Generation Xers who made it all happen. Here's a flavour of their thoughts on their generation.
2: Oh gosh, are we Generation X? <laughs> Is that what we're called? Children of the 70s, you know, and then we burst into technology and the, you know, the difference that that has made and having to keep up with with that. And I feel that, you know, we, we've had the benefit of that compared to My parents who are an older generation who, you know, technology is pretty difficult for them. So I think in our lifetime, that's been significant. In some respects, I think Generation X were lucky in lots of respects. I had the opportunity to go to university. So it seems absolutely crazy now that my fees were paid to go to university. And I was actually given £2,500 to live on.
1: There was an opportunity there and I took that opportunity. My generation perhaps didn't realise it at the time how lucky we were to be given the chance to get to university irrespective of whether you could afford to go or not.
2: We're in the midst of this pandemic and what that's going to mean, and you know, I think that's highly significant for us as well as being part of this study. How has that impacted on us and people of our generation, and how might how we've dealt with it then go on to inform people in the future?
0: But what was happening at that time? What do we know about the early 1970s? Here's what the early results
3: from the birth survey tell us. One in seven participants were born at home. Nine out of 10 parents were married when their child was born. 50% of mothers had smoked while pregnant. There were 189 pairs of twins and one set of triplets. The average age of mothers was just 26. The three most common boys' names were Paul, Andrew, and Mark. The three most common girls' names were Sharon, Joanne, and Sarah.
0: So what was it like to be part of the study? Recollections from the early years of the study are fading, but there are slithers of memories. Here's James reflecting on being part of the cohort.
2: I think my earliest memory is when I was at primary school, and I think it was like a health check, uh, and it was in the head teacher's office and asking questions, and my mum was there, I think it was in the infant school, so that must have been when I was five or six. So I think that's probably my earliest memory of it. My mum would have explained it. Um, and so from an early age, probably did, you know, know sort of what was happening. And every time there was, you know, a questionnaire to fill in or uh, we had a visitor or, you know, a health check, um, you know, she was always keen that um, that I took part and that we completed it fully. And, uh, you know, I think she saw it as an important thing and honored to be part of it. Uh, And also there was uh, another pupil in my class that was also part of the study. So I remember from quite a young age that we used to talk about it. And we always knew that we were born at the same time because our mums were in the same maternity hospital uh, at the same time. So, um, but I remember from quite a young age, sort of, you know, chatting with her about the study.
0: Dr. Leon Feinstein is Professor of Education and Children's Social Care at Oxford University. Few pieces of research have had such an impact on government policy as Leon Feinstein's analysis of BCS-70 data. This examined the links between family background and children's cognitive development. The research was part of Leon's PhD in the early 2000s. It showed how high achieving children from poor backgrounds in their earliest years appeared to be overtaken in their later cognitive development by lower-achieving children from affluent backgrounds. This was important as it suggested that children's environments, rather than their raw talents, were shaping how well they did at school and in life subsequently. The findings caught the attention of Prime Minister Tony Blair and within the year £500 million had been assigned to a national programme of preschool provision across the UK. Ask me my three main priorities for government. And I tell you, education, education, and education. Leon told me that he was initially interested in the 1970 study because he felt a real connection to the generation.
4: The 70 cohort is so interesting because that's, I suppose, to me, the closest to my life. You know, as a child that you know, went to comprehensive school uh, and was part of a post-war generation that really had the benefit of huge investments in Uh, opportunities for development and 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 part of a period of history in which inequality was reducing and social mobility on some definitions on some measures was increasing and there was this notion of change but there was also this very clear sense after you know uh, long periods of conservative rule big questions about the degree to which you could really generate social change and the degree to which inequality, social class inequality, particularly in the UK, is is, is unchangeable or whether you can really uh, get at it. And that, that was a very interesting question to me.
0: This PhD has been more impactful, certainly in social science, than any other, I would argue, over the last 30 years. <laughs> Um, You know, never has two lines on a graph had so much impact in terms of stirring debate about inequality and early uh, childhood development. Can you, for our listeners, explain that curve or or the crossover line for us, please?
4: So this is a graph from the 1970 cohort study, and we're looking at children at four points in time based on the measures that were in the cohort study using particularly... The, the subsamples of data that were available at, when the children were 22 months old, 42 months old, age 5, and at age 10. So at four points in time from 1970 through to 1980. And then all I really did was take two variables in a sense. The first one was a measure of cognitive development of the children um, at those four points in time. This isn't a measure of cognitive ability per se. This is a measure of relative performance compared to other children at that age. I then, as a second variable, took a measure of social class, essentially the occupation of the the uh, uh, the earners in the household, primarily the fathers in the, in these data. The pattern that you see that was striking and interesting to people was the advantaged kids, the upper-class kids, who scored... Poorly at 22 months, their their scores just continue to rise through the four periods, and the uh, the working class kids who scored well early on, their scores declined through the the period to age 10. But it's and it's important to say at 42 months and at age five, so later on in a different set of tests, more than three years later, the working class kids who scored well early on, at age five, were still doing better than the upper-class kids who scored badly early on. So it wasn't all noise at all. Three and a half years later, there's still an average difference between those two groups, but by age 10, the two groups have crossed over, and the upper-class kids who'd scored poorly early on have overtaken the working-class kids who'd scored well. And that's the crossover that, that you mentioned, and I think... Uh, generated a lot of interest and was part of the impact of the graph and it wasn't an intentional thing it was one graph in a series of analyses that uh, helped in explaining the broad general finding which is that inequality in this sense that social class dominates over early signals of ability in influencing where children ended up in the 1970 cohort in their school development
0: researchers spend lifetimes looking for a breakthrough graph like this you 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 produced a phd at the beginning of your career which was explosive in in many ways i'm just wondering on a personal basis has it had a personal uh cost on you just because it's it's had so much scrutiny
4: Uh, i mean firstly i was very fortunate in a way that the phd came out when it did you know it was just at the beginning of a, of a government that, that really wanted to invest in development in child development and address inequality so that the key issues of the graph I think really spoke to policymakers at that time I always dispute the idea that it had impact it's very hard to say um, what drives decision making I'm very skeptical about the degree to which single analyses drive decision making. I think it was useful and it helped people focus and it helped people discuss. And maybe there was a, an ambition there already that the graph helped kind of. Uh, symbolised to people, but it didn't drive the interest in development or inequality of of the new Labour government by any means. And when you look at how the graph was used often, it was to emphasise the importance of the early years. And that was a debate that had been going on within the Labour Party for for 20, 30 years. Um, So I'm sceptical about impact. But at the same time, I've lived off that graph. I can't complain. Um, You know, uh, (laughs) There were four papers in my PhD. Uh, That was one of them. And, you know, it's kind of frustrating that the only thing I've ever done that will ever uh, achieve public debate was that. But, but you know, I'm grateful for it.
0: I think the graph did contribute certainly to the wonderful, in many ways, in my view, renaissance in terms of early years uh, funding and policy under the new Labour regime. And, and I remember going to conferences across the world and other countries being really envious about this bold uh, move. So can you say a little bit about what happened under the Labour government? Because it was a huge thing at the time, wasn't it? The sure start centres.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I think Every Child Matters and, and the kind of child poverty coalition would be two central elements of that. And the, the new Labour government came in with a, with a real and tangible commitment to reduce relative and absolute child poverty. And that shaped a lot of policy. Every Child Matters was a rich framework. It wasn't actually just about social mobility. It was also about child protection, of course, and safeguarding. And those two themes came together in in Every Child Matters as a theoretically rich framework of theory and science to shape policy together with investment. So there's this famous crossover, and I think, I think the thing about it, as you say, was that
0: what was so compelling about this was that it showed that, to some extent, social class was trumping, if you, if you like, some innate ability, if I can call it. Again, I'm careful with all these terms because they're so loaded. It, it prompted an intellectual debate, didn't it, as, as, as well as the, a as, as the policy debate, People to this day are still reviewing your graph and interpreting it in different ways. I mean, do you still stand by your findings uh, all this time after the the original publication?
4: I stand by the graph in the sense that the graph as figure two of the paper in 2003 uh, describes the data accurately. Um, the, all the issues are about interpretation and meaning. That's where all the subtleties are. I regret not complaining about the description of children at, based on a twenty-two-month score as dim or bright, um, and there was a misinterpret- misinterpretation of the graph that—that that I think is a big risk in in public use of social science, uh, and is is a hard issue that you point to of how do you deal with uncertainty. You you have a career. Lee, of, of, of trying to influence policy, and you know how hard this is. Um, I mean, I've tried to do it from within government, within the civil service, and I know that if you talk about uncertainty, you can leave the room. It's no use at all. And, and, and you know, policymaking is a quick and unnuanced process in many ways, although there's great skill to it and, and, and fabulous people trying to do it. But you have to get this balance between certainty and uncertainty, The the science is uncertain. Science is uncertain. Social science is uncertain. Uh, 22-month tests of children do not tell you anything fixed about their ability. Um, And yet they tell you something. And the the nuanced conversation is about development. Um, I always kept the graph the way it was with the big shift between 22 months and 42 months where you have this phenomenon of all the groups coming back towards the middle because of measurement error at 22 months some people have wanted to analyze that away to come up with measures that uh, address the measurement error as they see it and provide true versions of that graph I think that's a mistake for two reasons Uh, one was it was very useful to to have the big shift between 22 months and 42 months in the graph because it helped me explain to policymakers about the huge amount of noise in the early scores and to have a conversation about how uh, 22 months and 42 months scores don't tell you innate ability and there's measurement error and all children's scores move about a lot. Um, And yet, if you think about this, not about the stories of individual children, but about a picture of society, it's showing you something that is true about the general tendencies in our society. And you have to be able to have both of those conversations. The other reason I think the graph and that research and the cohort studies have so much impact is I think there's something very democratic about letting those data speak. Those data have spoken in a way, given a voice to, to the people in the cohort studies to reflect their experience in uh, uh, public and scientific debate. And I think, I think there's a really important democratic function for cohort studies in that way Um, and so I think there's something quite important about actually reporting uncorrected data these are the actual scores. The big issue for me probably was what happened in the transition from Labour to coalition and Conservative government. I was a civil servant during the transition and Sir Peter Riddell I remember saying in a talk to civil servants that When the government changes, the evidence changes. And I thought, that can't be true. The evidence is the evidence. The science is the science. What is he talking about? But it was totally true. Government sets policy. And it's very hard in the civil service, or even as a scientific advisor to government, to go against policy. Policy sets a framework within which evidence itself operates. What questions are being asked? What kinds of answers are acceptable or believed? And what kind of proof is required? All of those things changed. And it was fascinating how very early on in the coalition they did their social mobility strategy and then the, the kind of assault on the graph came. The, the issues with the graph, that had been true all along. That there is measurement error and this phenomenon of movement towards the, the middle of the chart. I mean, I could talk about why I don't call it regression to the mean, but that might be another topic for another day.
0: So what do you think the future holds for BCS70 and the cohort studies?
4: It is shocking we haven't had another birth cohort study. But you think about this generation of children who who have experienced both austerity and now pandemic. Children being born now are experiencing such different lives, even to the millennium cohort, Um, And that we have no data on how those patterns are going to influence uh, structural inequality or the characteristics and experiences uh, of children across the country in a a substantive way, I think is a a shocking uh, indictment of of this government's commitment to data and evidence about children, and indeed about social policy.
0: Jumping back to 1975, here's a flavour of what was happening within families up and down the nation
3: age five, one in three mums worked regularly outside the home. 60% of participants shared a bedroom and 10% shared a bed. Half had a colour TV and three in five had a telephone at home. Two in five were read to at home every day. A third of mothers felt children should not talk at the dinner table. Quite a change
0: from these days. Gillian is a member of the 1970 cohort, and she remembers the study when she was age five.
4: I was quite shy, uh, hiding behind the curtains when the lady came to interview me. So I wouldn't come out from behind the curtains and had to be sort of shamed into coming out. And there were like various little games and tests and things that she was doing. Um, And they sort of shamed me by getting my younger brother to do them. And eventually I was sort of coaxed out from behind the curtains to take part. But yeah, I was quite nervous.
0: In the next episode, we'll move into the 1980s to find out how Neville Butler kept the study going during a decade of austerity. We'll learn about the benefits of reading for pleasure for children's English and math skills, We'll also ask study participants about their teenage years and find out what it was like sharing their 19th birthday with 4,000 other people at Alton Towers. See you next week.
3: 50 years of life in Britain, powered by UCL Minds. I hope you subscribe to join the celebration.